This is Reynolds Podcast, The Creative Mindset. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Creative Mindset, a podcast about what the future holds at the intersection of creativity and technology. I am Reina Moto, the founding partner of IONCO, a global innovation firm based in New York and Tokyo. Today's guest is Greg Hoffman, the former chief marketing officer of Nike. In his 27 year tenure at Nike, he went from a design intern to chief marketing officer. If you haven't listened to part one of my conversation with Greg, please do have a listen. In part two, we go into the work that he's been part of at Nike in close to three decades, as well as the kind of risks he took to help build the brand to what it is today. Also, he's one of the rare people who started their career in design and transitioned into the business side of a corporation. You hear Greg talk about what he needed to do to make that transition. So let's get started. One point that you just mentioned that I'd like to pick up on is the, this notion of risk. And Nike is a, a brand known for taking a lot of risks. In your 27 tenure at,、uh, at Nike, what are some of the risks that you've taken as a leader and as a, as a brand that, that you think has worked out and has paid a dividend? And, and I would imagine if there are risks, there must be risks that didn't pan out as you had imagined or as the team had、uh, imagined. So, if you could talk about first some of the risks that you remember that you andor the team deliberately took and it worked out great, and then maybe talk about a, a, a failed risk that you,、uh, you, you might have encountered. Yeah, well, great question, right? And I'll go back to the beginning again because when I showed up at the door at Nike and I went to the internship orientation, and that is when we first heard the mantra lead from the front. And which means that you're going to go out first as a business or as an athlete, and everyone else is going to have to react to you, the competition, et cetera. And that was embodied, of course, through Steve Prefontaine, the great distance、uh, runner at the University of Oregon, and was Nike's first sponsored athlete, right? Because that's how he ran. And so that ethos of taking the risk, leading from the front, carried through into the way the brand approached certainly innovation, telling stories, and engaging with customers in the world. And so every step of the way, I saw that idea of creative risk taking come to life, certainly in culture. And, and just from a personal standpoint, you know, I was faced、uh, in 2010 with having to make a decision between do I go down the design route and continue to grow in that lane? Or do I go down the marketing route?、Mm. Because I was always the hybrid, right? I had one foot in the world of design and, and that, and I had one foot in maybe more of the brand strategy route.、Mm -hmm. And so I never defined myself as either, but I was faced with having to make a decision at that point. And ultimately, I chose the marketing route because I still felt that there was an enormous amount of. Creative leadership that you could drive through the discipline of marketing, right? And so that is when I started to move into 
new roles with greater and more expansive responsibility hmm. in turn over how the brand showed up with its voice and identity throughout throughout the world. So, but that that's a risk, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because you're 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 stretching yourself, and you you don't. There's no guarantee with success. Yeah. That, the other thing I would say here is before the "Just Do It" do it slogan was created, Nike often used the slogan "There is no finish line." Right. Right. And so again, just like within athletics, the same goes with in business and innovation and in that there's, you can always continue to pursue better. Hmm. And so I don't, I've never looked at failure as failure. To me, failure is not only the price of innovation, but failure is simply the steps on the way to success hmm. because let's face it. The, the products and services that we covet the most within our daily rituals on the way to achieve what we're using today, mm -hmm. there are so many discarded ideas and mm -hmm. things that didn't work that led to that success, mm -hmm. right? So I don't mind using the word failure as long as everyone understands that that's simply the price of innovation, right? Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I want to be clear about this to anyone that's listening, right? Is that you're taking risks on behalf of the customer. You're taking risks to create solutions that are going to empower people or cities or communities to be better than they were the day before. Mm -hmm. So it's not just risk-taking for the sake of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's risk taking in service of others. And if you have that mindset, mm. then, then your the work that you put in, I believe is going to be, you know, more productive and ultimately more valuable for, for those you serve. And so, um, you know, oftentimes look, uh, when I think of risks, I think of concepts and projects that weren't on a business plan they weren't briefed they oftentimes happened because a couple people were in a hall way and decided to ask what if and why not hmm. and so i think of some of nike's greatest uh consumer concepts that it's put out in the world right hmm. When I think of Nike's customization shops that they grew during the, you know, let's say the 2000s, mm. you know, a lot of that was born out of a team looking at other industries. Mm -hmm. And we actually looked at the Savile Row in London and how su fine suits are tailored by these master craftspeople in the most personal way. Mm -hmm. And we simply walked out of those stores experiences and we said well what would that mean within the world of sneakers hmm. and it started with one prototype of a sneaker customization shop in new york and then that grew to creating pop-up stores and studios in all of our flagship resale stores so my point is is that there is a risk with that but someone's got to take the first step mm-hmm and it's not always going to work. Mm. I think the best brands, the brands that I think are in leadership positions when it comes to innovation mm. are the brands that are willing to go first.
right? Mm. And they understand that maybe only one out of four ideas is going to stick, right? It's going to, mm. you know, ultimately be uh, adopted by your customer. Mm. But when it happens, uh, it's, it, you know, it can be really impressive. Mm. It's interesting to hear you say that you don't think of failures as failures. Those are moments in time where things maybe, you know, didn't pan out as you expected. But in hindsight, it's interesting to hear you say that you don't necessarily view them as, oh, you know, this was a failed thing or that was a failed thing, but just a, as a step to make something even better than what it was before. Yeah, that's right. I always remind myself this, which is if you're a team that works within a brand or an agency, hmm. how do you expect to take your customers someplace new if you're not willing to go there first yourself? It's impossible, right? Hmm. So that's part of being a leader is taking that first step, hmm. going out there first, even if it's a moonshot, right? Hmm. And then inviting your customers, your audiences to that audacious future, right? Mm. And so, again, uh, if everything makes it out into a marketplace, the digital or physical marketplace, well, you may be playing it too safe, mm. right? You may not be pushing far enough. You might be in that safe, safe place. Maybe you're just simply incrementally improving what you have, but you haven't necessarily taken that step where you're creating a revolution within a particular category hmm. or industry. So at the end of the day, you have to incentivize risk-taking. You know, there's, and I talk about this in the book, but I was around athletes and teams that did that, hmm. right? So I was able to take a lot of inspiration as well as my peers from what we saw in the world of sports. And there was one team over and over again that embodied this idea of creative risk-taking or creative collaboration, which is the Brazil national team. Mm. And not only were they successful, they're the only team with five World Cups in the world of global football, the beautiful game. Mm. But it's not how many trophies they've won, it's how they've won. Mm. And when many teams are just trying to create uniformity, and driving out all the individuality, hmm. you know, here's this team that's actually celebrating the creative eccentricities of each individual player hmm. coming together and allowing, having a game plan and a playbook hmm. that allows a level of spontaneity and improv during the game hmm. to produce amazing football hmm. and oftentimes that ends with a, sp a goal you've never seen before, right? Mm. So, hey, at the end of the day, creativity is messy, right? Mm. And there's going to be times where it literally drives you mad. Mm. But if you stick to that and you allow yourself uh, to even be embarrassed at sometimes, mm -hmm. I think over time, having an aspect of your culture that, you know, at the end of the day, a culture where people don't have to ask for permission to use their imagination, right? Mm. 
people are allowed to dream. They're allowed to ask those questions, what if and why not? And at the end of the day, yes, um, this is a business and we have a responsibility to drive that business. But one thing you can do is carve out time and space for teams to work on things that are running parallel to the business plan Hmm. and then creating forums where stakeholders are there to hear, listen, and feel new ideas, Hmm. right? That may not necessarily be on the plan. And I saw time and time again through that process that we were able to bring things uh, into the marketplace that, um, carved out new territory for the brand Hmm. and rewarded customers for the passion that they had for our products. Hmm. You talked about the Brazilian football team, soccer team. And was there a moment or was there a game or was there a play that you saw that made you go, wow, that's a risky move or wow, that's a courageous thing that this player did or that player did? What, What made you think that Brazilian team was this risk-taking creative team? Look, it, a couple things here. <laughs> One, it, it actually started in the 70s with me as, as a kid in the suburbs of, of Minnesota, right? Hmm. And opening up comic books and there would be an ad with Pele, you know, the greatest Brazilian football player ever. So as a kid, I'm, I'm seeing Pele uh, and, and then seeing uh, there's a movie called victory Hmm. you can decide if you like that movie or not but pele's actually in that movie and he does a bicycle kick right Hmm. and so not only have you seen pele in your favorite comic books now you're seeing pele on the screen with none other than sylvester stallone playing goalie right these are prisoners of war playing uh, they're German captors, right? And a team of all-star football players versus the prisoners, okay? Well, Pele and Sylvester Stallone are prisoners, right? Yeah. So anyways, as a kid, I'm seeing this movie in real life. And then ultimately really solidified by 1994 when Brazil won the World Cup in the U.S., right? where everyone in this country could see their brilliance through the play of Romario and Bobetto and a variety of other exciting players. And they had, look, they've developed their own style of play called Jenga, which means to sway. And what's amazing about this style is you can actually see the cultural inspiration in the actual play, like samba or like Brazilian martial arts, like capoeira. So to see that on the field with the way players are handling the ball, passing the ball and ultimately putting the ball in the net is is pretty incredible. And then I had no idea, though, as a kid that one day I would be working with them for over 25 years, creating stories and experiences on that with the likes of, you know, Ronaldo and Ronaldinho and all these superstars who were absolute magicians with the ball. And I think at the end of the day, they weren't just interested in winning. They were interested in playing the game beautifully. Hmm. And you know what? What an amazing thing for a business team. Again, it's not just, it's not just how often you win. Hmm. It's how you win. Hmm. 
That's why Brazil is usually the number, the second most favorite team in a given country, right? If you're talking national teams, mm -hmm. because of how people feel mm. when they're watching them. Right. There's an episode in your book about uh, the photo shoot that you were doing with the Brazilian national uh, team and how the fans started to get close and close and close. And you and your team were trying to protect the players, particularly, uh, I believe, Ronaldo, right? That's right. Could you talk a little bit about that and how you turned that into an additional element of the work? I, I thought that, that episode, I, I knew about the campaign from the outside, yeah. but I didn't know about the, the process that you went through and sort of created new elements to it as, as you went by. So my role was to lead a team to create the storytelling and brand identity for the Brazil World Tour. So we were going to take Nike partnering with Brazil was going to go on the road and play teams around the world to introduce this Brazil style of play to fans and, and, you know, audiences everywhere. And so I went down to Brazil uh, with two photographers and a film crew to capture footage uh, for all the different communication that we were going to have to create. And while I was down there, the team was had a, a open uh, scrimmage and training session at the stadium. And but there really wasn't security there. And so it was open really for the people of Guyana, Brazil, which is, is one of the, the, the cities there. And so as the training session and the scrimmage between the Brazil team was going on, you know, the, 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 the stands kept getting more and more full, right? And around the field, there is a fence and there is a moat, but the moat didn't have water. So theoretically, someone could climb down into the moat and climb back up over the fence and then run on the field. And you figure, okay, well, maybe one or two people would try that. Well, here's the problem. It started with just one person, then two people, then 10 people, then 50. And then really, I mean, everyone was coming. And we had finished our photo shoot. They had finished scrimmaging. And we were all in the middle of that field as everyone started to run towards the players, right? And so, yeah, I was around uh, Ronaldo. And so our team basically made a ring around um, the players we were doing the photo shoot around. But, and so you, you kind of got hit with full force of all these people, right? But at the end of the day, I looked down at Ronaldo because he was just stretching and relaxing after working out. And he was basically looked at me, but I didn't really understand what he was saying. But at the end of the day, I got what he was trying to get through to me, which was let the people through. Because at the end of the day, in some ways, it's like Brazil's success not only belongs to the team, but it belongs to the people too. And so there's just this incredible connection that these athletes have with the people of Brazil, where they've come from, mm. you know, they've come from the same neighborhoods, streets, cities as well. And so there's this incredible unifying power that football has and the hopes and dreams of Brazilians carried on through these amazing athletes. And so 
Hmm. My takeaway from there, because I had a different idea of where I thought we could take uh, the, you know, Brazil World Tour campaign. Hmm. And so coming out of that, I thought, well, you know what? It's going to be really, really important to also put the people of Brazil, the fans that are so passionate about this team in the actual stories and communication. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so from there, um, that really affected how I felt and how I steered and directed this uh, campaign. And I think the result was pretty amazing because Mm. audiences everywhere got a a view and access to a side of Brazil they had never seen before. Mm. Because for the most part, you've been accustomed to only seeing footage from games. Right. And so this ultimately, you know, you know, back to showing people your personality, they'll respond to your humanity. And I think we wanted to make sure we could show the personality of the players, of the country and of the fans. Mm-hmm. And then the reward, of course, is people around the world back to this idea of creating an emotional connection. Mm -hmm. You know, at the end of the day, you do that by expressing human characteristics, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And those characteristics and the way you reveal those stories ultimately, you know, leave that mark in someone's heart or mind. And I think that's, that's what that work did. Yeah. And I would imagine the fact that you captured not only the players, but also the fans, but capturing the fans, if I understood correctly, wasn't part of the plan initially, correct? No, it, it was not. We were there to follow the team around. We had access everywhere. But at the end of the day, you have to be resourceful. Yeah. And you have to understand that, as I said, there's two ways to a successful solution. You can take the linear path, hmm. the straight road, or you can take the long and windy road like I usually do. And this Mm. certainly was one of those cases. And you don't need permission to do that. Mm. You have to leave yourself open uh, to to adjusting on the fly in real time. And and we certainly did in that standpoint. And I believe we created something that was far more profound. Yeah. Because I think if you had planned it, oh, you know, let's capture the the audience, you would have staged it somehow and maybe the authenticity wouldn't have come through if you had planned it and staged it. That's right. But the fact that it was an organic, almost an accident that happened. Yeah. Even some of, well, most of the fans breaking through the fences, you know, climbing the the moat and uh, getting closer to the players, that's a total potentially not so safe accident that happened but but really embracing it and creating that authenticity it's uh, it's not easy to plan that way is it you're you're right i've always said this is that authenticity is paramount hmm. in terms of building a brand that you know resonates around the world and authenticity is your currency as a company and as a leader right in terms of how you show up and that people connect can connect what you do with who you say you are, right? And so authenticity comes from revealing a bit about who you are and who Nike is oftentimes is revealed through these athletes and through these teams and through the power of sport and the emotion of sport, right? Mm -hmm. So oftentimes my role, our role, right? Creatively, 
was to ensure that anchored in the brand's authenticity, mm-hmm. uh, as we strove to find new ways to communicate what you could say are timeless themes mm-hmm. of sport. Mm-hmm. Cause that's the other thing. If you just show up every day and just speak the same way in the same tone of voice, mm-hmm. expressing the same traits, you're probably going to get pretty annoying or boring. Hmm. Right. So I think any person in any brand is, is a mosaic of characteristics Hmm. and, and you have to be conscious of what tone of voice you want to use within a given year Hmm. so that you're not repetitive, you're not boring Hmm. or you're not screaming the whole time. Hmm. Right. So you have to be cognizant of what's happening in the world, where the cultural zeitgeist is, mm-hmm. and um, make make sure you're having those conversations and you're really clear on, one, the traits and characteristics of your brand personality, but two, what aspect of your persona do you want to reveal in that moment in time? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Speaking of persona and cultural zeitgeist, uh, one of the recent campaigns that, that that you talk about and that I'd like to bring up is uh, Dream Crazy. And going back to the earlier topic about taking risks, I mean, just coming up with a, a line like Dream Crazy, and you know, if you believe you know believe in something, even if you, you risk everything, is a risky proposition to to make. So during the the course of the development of a campaign like that, was there ever a talk internally about, hey, is this too risky? Or hey, what are the potential backlashes that we might get? What Talk, talk to us a, a little bit about the process of getting to that idea and then releasing it and perhaps calculating risks that you as a creative leader and you as a, a, a brand marketer may have taken. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's important, though, to understand that that work stood on the shoulders of a lot of work that had come before, right? And you go back to 2006 when there was a lot of racism within the world of global football, soccer, particularly in Europe. Racism between player against player, spectators against player, and coaches against player. And of course, it culminated with the Spanish national team coach caught on tape saying something racially insensitive about Thierry Henry, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so he had had enough and so had others. And so working together uh, also with Nike, we created the Stand Up, Speak Up campaign, right? And then let's fast forward to 2017 when we launched the Equality campaign, right? Where LeBron utters those words, why can't the ball bounce the same? The ball should bounce the same for everyone. And that idea that why is it we're equals on the field or the court of sports, but when we walk outside the white lines, we're not, right? So that's another example of, you know, amplifying the voice of athletes and the experiences to help shape a better future for everybody. So by the time and of course, there's many other different examples, right? So my point is, is that, you know, the brand had always been a champion to use the platform of sport and its position to add something 
insightful to the conversation and also create action to try to drive that change. And so fast forward to 2018, it's an opportunity to use the 30th anniversary of Just Do It, right? To kind of look out into the world and use the moment to invite everyone uh, to be a part of this, this movement to dream bigger, right? Because if you really look at that work, that amazing work, and again, a shout out to Winding Kennedy uh, and just all the amazing copywriters and art directors and creative directors that work there. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we dream big and we dream out loud when we're kids, but over time, as we get older, we start to dream less, we play it safer, we take less risks. And so it was really a moment in time to not only talk about what Colin had experienced and was experiencing, but also connecting that across a variety of different sports and people from all walks of life to really challenge the status quo about what it means to dream mm -hmm. and create something that um, it was quite inspiring, was topical. And um, was it a, a risk in the moment? Yeah, but again, I think it was just another example of what the brand had always been doing. It was not out of character. It was its character to do so. And certainly for me, it was a high point, right? As I write in the book, I have a lot of similarities hmm. in terms of how I grew up to Colin, right? So when I was in that first meeting on the Nike campus in 2017, when Colin uh, came to campus and he didn't have an NFL team to play for and we had a lunch, I was CMO at the time. And as I was sitting next to him, you know, I had to pause because, you know, we're both half white, half black. You know, we're both mixed race. We were both born to a teenage mother. Uh, we were both adopted by white parents and grew up in a predominantly white suburb uh, and or uh, school system. And, and of course, uh, in that journey, you're going to experience uh, moments and challenges of adversity, mm. challenges that uh, take form in racism, et cetera. And so in some ways, you, you can't necessarily separate that personal experience from your professional one, right? So when I'm in the room that day, I'm not just there as the CMO, I'm also there as the younger self, right? And looking through those eyes. But the good news is there's a variety of others around the table hmm. that are looking through a different lens. And that's the whole point is you're you're really having objective conversations hmm. about the best way to, to tell a story in the most authentic way that's going to reach the most people. When you're not having those conversations and there isn't the level of objectivity, that is when you find yourself in a situation where maybe you're off brand, right? And, um, and sometimes you look at work that makes it out into the world by certain companies and you can't believe it, but oftentimes it's because everybody's way too close to the work, hmm. right? And, um, it's important to have a voice of objectivity, even sometimes a dispassionate voice 
in the room, right? Someone that isn't emotionally tethered to that idea. So you can really put it through those filters to ultimately bring out something to the world Hmm. that may not hit in the moment, but over the long time is, as I said before, is never forgotten. Excellent. Lightning questions. During the interview, we dig deep into different topics surrounding creativity. On the contrary, with this section, we ask the same questions to the guests to react on the spot, and we don't let them see the questions in advance. Number one, if you weren't doing this, meaning branding, creative work, design, marketing, what else would you be doing? I'd be an architect. I have an addiction to modern architecture. Question number two, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? I would say I have an affinity towards cities that are on bodies of water. So it would most likely be Barcelona or Sydney or Rio, somewhere where you have that, you know, the beauty of the ocean meeting the land, and then maybe a little bit of history within the city itself. Where is the next place that you like to travel to? I really want to go to the mountains of Switzerland in the summer and hike between the mountain towns. That's number one on my bucket list. Question number four, your favorite food? Well, I recently cut out pizza because just the cheese and gluten and everything. So just trying to get a little bit healthier. But sushi continues to be one of my favorites. What was the biggest turning point in your life? I had a really amazing, arguably the number one design internship potentially in the world in 1992 at the Walker Arts Center. This revered modern art museum that had this design department and they gave out two internships a year and it was unbelievably competitive. And I got that, but I actually left early to go back to Nike as a full-time employee. And that took a lot of guts and something that you weren't supposed to do. And, but I did it and that was a huge turning point because at the end of the day, not only just did it lead to this career, but it's where I met my wife. And through my wife, my two kids were born. So at the end of the day, that those are the most important things in my life. So that was the biggest turning point. What is your superpower as an individual? Well, I think it is your, my eyes, I guess, and the filter that I look through and the way I evaluate and, well, one, the way I take in what I'm seeing, but also the way I evaluate it. Because at the end of the day, that's your role, you could say, as a creative director, your, your ability to look at a subject, look at work and, and shape it and not necessarily through your own hands, but through your voice and through the, the hands of others, if you will. But again, that, that fits back into that idea of curiosity and not just taking details for granted. That was part two of my conversation with Greg Hoffman, the former chief marketing officer of Nike and the author of Emotion by Design. So here are my three key takeaways from this part of my conversation with Greg. Key takeaway number one, always on the offense. Number two, it's not just the fact that you win, but it's how you win. And number three, be human, design emotion, and leave your legacy. 
Key takeaway number one, always on the offense, this is actually one of the maxims that Nike has inside the company. One episode that I thought would illustrate this point always on the offense is a recent initiative that Greg was part of called Dream Crazy, in which Nike features Colin Kaepernick, who was protesting police brutality against black men in the United States. He essentially risked his career to make a stand, to make a statement for something that he believed in. And it's something that Greg, also as a black person in growing up in the United States and facing a lot of and different types of racism throughout his life, he felt, Greg felt that it was important for him to be part of something like that. And if you think about Dream Crazy, I mean, for a multi-billion dollar international corporation to say Dream Crazy is not the easiest thing to do. There are many, many risks associated with making a statement like that. But as the statement, as the tagline Dream Crazy goes, and the additional story that Nike told with Colin was that they encourage people and particularly young people to believe in something even if you risk everything. I appreciated the fact that they took the risk to say something that they really believed in. Key takeaway number two, it's not just the fact that you win, but it's how you win. He also had an example to illustrate this point. And he used the Brazilian football slash soccer team. If you are remotely into soccer or football, you know that different teams and different countries have different styles of play. In the late 90s, I believe, Nike decided to sponsor the Brazilian, the national team, and they designed their uniform and they had the rights to use the Brazilian team to promote their business. But the fact, the reason why Nike chose Brazil as the team to support and really represent Nike as a brand is because of the style of play that many Brazilian players had. And it's called Jinga, which means sway in English. But this idea of Jinga is infused into the way every Brazilian player plays. And the Brazilian team, even different generations of Brazilian teams have this kind of sway. So it's not just about the fact that you win the game, but they play with style. They play and they win with Jinga. So it's not just the fact that you win, but it's how you win. Key takeaway number three, be human, design emotion, leave your legacy. I don't really need to say anything much on this statement. This is the summary of the book. It's the last phrases that Greg uses to summarize and encapsulate the essence of the book. And these three phrases, be human, design emotion, leave your legacy. In many ways, they say everything that Greg wants to say and everything I wanted to take away from him distilled into just a few words. Be human, design emotion, leave your legacy. That is the lesson that Greg imparts uh, to us and I hope you take something away from it. If you're listening to this on Spotify, there's a Q&A field, so please do send us your questions and comments. 
If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts or any other app, and if you like our podcast, please leave us a five-star rating. It really helps, and we'd be so grateful. In the next episode, we continue my conversation with Greg, and the focus is on taking risks in brand communication. I'm Ray Namoto, and this is A Creative Mindset. See you next time.